Imagine spending 25 years in prison for a crime that you didn't commit. Not just 25 years, but 25 years of forced labor. You could have gone in prison for something like pulling a raw turnip at the wrong time and the people you would have to answer to would have the ability to shoot you or take out all of their issues on you. Compared to a wait like that, the wait for this video and due to the gravity of the content, is less than a drop in the ocean. This is the fourth video in a six-part series exploring the book written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn called The Gulag Archipelago. The Gulag Archipelago is an account collected through literary investigation of what happened in the Soviet Union in the forced labor camps from 1918 to 1956 under Stalin rule. The labor camps were the initially hidden outcome of a communist revolution that occurred from 1917 to 1918 in the place that we call Russia today. Solzhenitsyn's book has seven parts that are spread across three volumes. This video covers the end of volume two, parts three to five, which are about the destructive rather than corrective labor camps. In our previous forays into this text, we examined the social climate right after the revolution when the arrests were made based on the ideology of people and the ideology of communism. How the law matured over time through corruption and perversion, and then how the prison system, instead of being overthrown by the new people in power who came for a wonderful social revolution, was just co-opted instead. And those prison systems had actually been used by the bourgeois system, the enemies of communism beforehand. And it was just used with even less respect for prisoners and for people's labor, you know, the really important thing that people were fighting to be treated fairly about. So there was a communist revolution and nothing actually got better. In fact, it got worse. But you know, the darkest hour is just before dawn. Oh my God, what am I doing? By the way, my name is Desiree and welcome to Just Thinking Out Loud. Please stick around to the end of the video for some interesting updates and content. Part three, the destructive labor camps continued. Chapter 13, hand over your second skin too. The possibility of skinning a man twice, metaphorically speaking, was invented in the Gulag Archipelago because people could be given second terms and this occurred specifically between 1937 and 1938 during the war years. There were prisoners who were called repeaters because they could be sent back to prison after having left and sometimes prisoners were just given second sentences instead of being shot and it didn't really matter how long the years were, it could be 10, 18, 8 years, sometimes it was better to just do that than be interrogated. So you would just sign your freedom away a second time. You could defer being drafted for the war, even though a lot of the officers in the prisons would try to get prisoners or zeks to go to the front rather than them because they came because they would claim that they were useful at the gulag camps since they would keep plots at bay. One such plot was that prisoners would try to get machine guns to fight against the motherland. Solzhenitsyn relates a story about a man named Babich who was a former Arctic explorer and how he was pressured into giving fake testimony against 24 others, people he didn't know because he was threatened with less food, going into the punishment cell, physical violence, and being baited with food while he was being starved of food during the interrogation. After 1943, these plots that were being kept at bay were about propaganda. People were being convicted for praising the wrong poet who happened to be bourgeoisie. There were show trials for non-political offenders. People were charged for eating raw turnips. That's what I mentioned earlier, just for example. And second trial interrogations were even worse than regular camp conditions. In one interrogation prison, the Ortokan penalty camp in the Kalima from 1937 to 1938, that's the warriors. Tents had dead corpses around them that were piled up in the snow. Prisoners would wait, standing together, and anyone who brought out a dead prisoner could then get the rations off that dead prisoner. They would bring out a quote-unquote stiff. And survivors of that Oroticon camp said that they preferred the gas chambers to that. Or I guess they would have preferred. Interrogations would include torture and brigadiers, the people who would lead work teams, they would testify against other work team members. In one such case of a brigadier member testifying against other brigade members, 
the person who was being accused was being accused of saying that Singer sewing machines were better than Russian Podolsk sewing machines. In 1938, the Trotskyites that were mentioned earlier, who had a hunger strike, were they as well as the democratic centralists, so not just communists, also, you know, more socialistic tendencies, they were deceived and they were interrogated. They were given a half ounce of bread a day, the strikers, and a a bowl of gruel, and sometimes, although not every day, they were given a piece of codfish. They didn't have any water, and they had ice as part of the ration, and they weren't able to bathe, and sometimes they would get scurvy on their bodies. Thieves were turned on these strikers, including the Trotskyites, and they beat them with clubs, they defecated in their clothes, and these thieves were protected as a socially friendly elements. After enduring all of this, after doing the strike, these prisoners were shot and put in a pit. And at another camp, prisoners from other political groups than just the strict party line, even though they worked together at the beginning, they were buried alive and this was how the unity of the party morally and politically was achieved. Chapter 14, Changing One's Fate. Although the majority of the prisoners were submissive and they weren't philosophers, some of them wanted to escape. Especially during the wartime when there were less men around, prisoners would try to leave during then. And this form of escape was called the Green Prosecutor because it was so difficult to actually escape. One man escaped twice in one day, 70 people escaped from a camp in one day another time, and over 1,000 escaped from another camp. That's a lot of people. There were certain chains that kept prisoners in these camps. The first and most significant one was the actual mental submission of the prisoners themselves because they saw themselves as slaves belonging to the state. As well as to the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, that's the NKVD, the guards, and the dogs. Another chain was the fact that there were checkpoints everywhere if you decided to try and travel somewhere. Another one was starvation. Due to being weak, you wouldn't have energy to actually do what you needed to do to get out. But why not change one's fate from death, anyhow? The impulse to escape would be strongest in the first year. And then other chains were the geography of the taiga and the tundra and the hostility of the local people towards prisoners. And another chain was that prisoners could be given second terms if they did escape and were caught. Even when escape plans weren't being hatched, stoolies or informers, they would get prisoners to talk about escaping so that they could inform on them and get them in trouble. And then if a prisoner did escape when they were found, they would be made examples of. They would be beaten, their organs and their lungs and their kidneys would have long-term issues. There's one particular incident described where, where prisoners who were lost had their hands beaten to a pulp and their bodies dragged through the camp to be made examples of. In this part of the book, Solzhenitsyn relates the stories of different escapees. One former frontline soldier freed prisoners with him, but then they wouldn't leave. One group spared the guards, but then the guards told on them, and then they were eventually caught. One man left on two logs just to face the Arctic, not knowing where he would go. And it's likely that escapees who were actually successful didn't share it because they were successful and they wanted to keep quiet. One man, after 17 years, was tracked down by the state. There's also a pretty crazy story about a man named Chebotaryov, who he escaped and then he and his wife, they were looking for their sons, their two sons, and they, they eventually found one son after a really long time and he had changed his name and then gone back to prison and then was recognized even though he had changed his name and then his son had changed his name. But then when they finally found his son years later, his son blamed him for ruining his whole life and so it was all worthless. So even if you did escape, it didn't mean that your life was good or that you wouldn't be caught again or anything like that. But people who did escape to the West, they were the ones who were probably the most lucky and also would keep quiet about what happened because they were successful. Chapter 15, Punishments. Although the corrective labor code of 1924 only allowed for isolation in a separate cell that was not a punishment cell and it should have been dry and well lit and have sleeping accommodations, punishment cells that were avoided by everyone, including the thieves, were used. So the law didn't mean anything. 
as is obviously the case throughout the entire book. Thieves, religious prisoners, and fugitives were sent to these punishment cells. And they could be sent there for really frivolous reasons like upsetting a guard or for women refusing a guard's advances or refusing to be an informer or <laughs> being late for roll call or not going to bed on time and so on. A penalty isolator called a shizzle had to be cold, damp, dark, and be made for starvation. By law, Azek wasn't supposed to be put there for more than 15 days, but they ended up there for way longer than that. In the strict regimen barracks, prisoners could be beaten with a felt boot with a brick in it. Nuns and thieves were also put together in the same punishment cells. There was pederasty, people being killed on the spot, and then to fill norms or work quotas, undeserving prisoners might be sent to the penalty camps just because, and there was also cannibalism in certain places. As I was reading this, I thought that the statements about the temperature, like the window panes not being put back up in the winter, and some of what he described, it just seemed really out there. And I remember he was talking about people working in the snow, and I just don't know how you would survive. Then again, I'm from a tropical country, so maybe I don't really understand like maybe they could survive. Chapter 16, the socially friendly. The socially friendly, that term refers to the thieves, the people who ideologically were the most to benefit from the ideology of socialism and communism because the environment was to blame for everything. It also seems that when Solzhenitsyn says thieves, he often means murderers and rapists as well. Solzhenitsyn clearly and repeatedly states throughout the text that he does not like thieves and that they were emboldened by the state. This was also what actually got his attention when he was being tricked into becoming an informer that he could tell on the thieves because he really didn't like them. Russian literature Hugo, Balzac and Pushkin and Soviet literature Gorky and Makarenko in particular seem to praise thieves along with the party. Their specific works mentioned like Shostakovich's Ballet, The Young Lady and the Hooligan, and a writer for the party line called Viktor Nekarasov with his In the Trenches of Stalingrad. Thieves in camp could sing songs glorifying robbery and murder and assault for 30 years. That's three zeros. The, the timelines in this is like so abstract, but think how long 30 years is. For 30 years up to 1947, you could receive 10 years in prison for robbing from the state embezzling state funds, stealing a packing case from a warehouse of three potatoes from a collective farm. Citizens would have to be wary about having anything or showing their money, wearing jewelry, carrying money around, and there were locks and bars everywhere. As I was reading this, it was reminding me of Jamaica, actually, like pretty fairly closely, but minus a lot of the social climate behind it. So thieves would not be sentenced appropriately compared to what innocent people would do like if you're stealing some potato from a collective farm then you could get the same prison sentence as someone who like robbed or assaulted or even murdered someone there's a case where two women wouldn't let their husbands go and defend or save a person being assaulted on the street because they knew that they would just end up going to jail for it i think the person was the person was beaten to death in 1953, there was a Voroshilov amnesty that pardoned murderers, bandits, and thieves after the war in order to win popularity with the people, and the Criminal Code of 1926 stopped acknowledging self-defense except if a thief literally had a knife hovering over the person, and a person couldn't stab a thief without being stabbed first. <laughs> okay. And of course... The state stopped people from defending themselves with firearms, for example, or other weapons, but they weren't liable to defend citizens, which is, I think, how the police works in a lot of places in the modern world, which just doesn't make sense. Thieves were also not named because there couldn't be crime in a classless society. This was done to impress the West, and it was also stated that malaria had been cured completely and eradicated in order to impress the West. There were textbooks on Soviet corrective labor policy that wanted to use thieves in order to bring their hierarchy into the camp system. And Solzhenitsyn is very clear to point out that these texts flow from the one and only true teaching, which is Marxism. So it's exactly directly from the theory 
which is still popular in a lot of the world today, that all of these horrendous things happened. It's not because of how it was done in one country, it's specifically because of the theory. So that's what he points out. His words, not mine, who actually lived through it. And that's because it explains everything in terms of class struggle. He calls them sanctifying lofty theories. Thieves just had unbridled power over everyone in the camps, including women thieves over other female prisoners on behalf of male thieves. The only good words that Solzhenitsyn has to say on behalf of the thieves is that they actually had an honor code that they upheld and that they had their own kind of courts and systems and that they ruled along these guidelines justly and followed it to a T. He also mentions a playwright named Nikolai Pogodin who visited the Bellamore Canal but didn't say the truth about what happened with the thieves and then only portrayed them as pickpockets who became reformed people. Chapter 17, The Kids. This chapter is about hate begetting hate and how children became part of the whole system, that they were abused by it, and then they also became abusers. That's how things work. So these were juvenile offenders. Children were orphaned by famine, parents being executioned, etc. From 1930 onwards, children had to work four to six hours a day and they got wages for their labor. They were sentenced from the age of 12 for theft, assault, mutilation, and murder. There's an interesting statistic. In 1927, prisoners aged 16 to 24 accounted for 48% of the prison population. And in 1935, the great evildoer is a term that Solzhenitsyn gives for Stalin. He decided that children from the age of 12 were to be given all the regular sentences up to capital punishment and this was around the time when the great evildoer's daughter was even the same age. The state even went further to imprison children for crimes that happened carelessly. For a pocket full of potatoes, one child was sentenced to eight years in prison. And in 1948, they did ease up on the law in order to accommodate for mischief. Solzhenitsyn mentions that on a prisoner transport ship from Vladivostok to Sakhalin in 1949, the bitches, that particular segment of thieves, they used children at knife point for carnal enjoyment. And then children just adapted because they didn't have another experience to compare it to. In one case, kids, they boasted about a nurse in a children's colony being tricked into going into a cell and then they ambushed and raped her and then these kids couldn't be shot. And, and then in another instance, which I think is mentioned earlier in the book, probably mentioned in one of my videos, there was sex in broad daylight with the children around and then the children would enter like men. But I remember he didn't specify the age, but I'm assuming it's under 16, I'm not sure. This chapter is so depressing, <laughs> like it's seriously depressing. I mean, the whole book is, it really is. Um, I mean, my personality kind of clashes because I always want to smile, but like it's actually depressing. The children looked up to the thieves. Children would steal from starving workers. They would also jostle workers who were tired and then the workers would get angry at the children. The children would shout obscenities and they wouldn't have any shame or any controlling parenting force. And out of anger, the older prisoners might be violent with the kids as well. There's an example of a schoolgirl, her parents were being arrested and then they found her diary which she was trying to like rip up hastily and in it she had like a little poem thing and it said the stars in heaven are shining down and their light falls on the dew. Smolensk is already lost and gone and we're going to lose Moscow too. And then she said, we only wish they'd bomb the school. We're awfully tired of studies. And then because she said that, she was sentenced to five years in prison and three years deprivation of civil rights, which she didn't actually have. So Janice states. <laughs> and as evidence for what she'd done, they confiscated her diaries from the sixth grade and a counter-revolutionary photograph which was a picture of a destroyed Bavarinskaya church. I would sum up this chapter by the term that Solzhenitsyn uses, and I guess is used a lot, which is that hate begets hate. On the flip side, love begets love, so I'll put that in too. Chapter 18, The Muses in Gulag. 
Prisons had cultural and re-education centers where, in contrast to capitalist prisons, according to the Soviet state, life was not killed but sprung forth. Socially friendly elements like thieves and even rapists could be instructors in these cultural and educational centers. They could teach about the role of labor in correction. There were propaganda brigades, people's families being on the outside, sometimes the truth, sometimes not, and them not being dead yet. That was used as leverage for existing prisoners to get them to do labor. They had theatricals and they read papers together in the evenings and all of this, this was proof that there was a free press. Solzhenitsyn mentions that the materials for the chapter, at least in the beginning, that they came from a collection of articles edited by Vyshinsky and from Averbach. In case anyone is a nerd and wants to look up that stuff where we study in this in a scholarly manner. Prisoners in their free time, they would make art with dirt and glass. Inventions were encouraged. One man said that they could transmit odors at a distance based on garlic, but it wasn't of military use, so no one cared. As Solzhenitsyn mentions, when he was taken away to that kind of sanctuary among prisons, a lot of those inventions or intellectual feats that were made up by prisoners. German prisoners of war were tricked into sharing secrets, but because the officers weren't very smart, they would just go based on the volume of the work, and so they would just make stuff up to throw them off and to save useful details. There were scientists who had important work they were doing, like being related to heart attack or cancer or rocket, but their work wasn't considered meaningful because it wasn't useful to the Soviet Union. One man turned out to be a rocket scientist, and at first he was assigned to the bathhouse where he would make sure that women weren't going in with their underwear. When I read this, I asked myself, how does this job even work? And a lot of the people thought that he was incompetent at the bathroom underwear job. So this chapter is called The Muses in Gulag because there were so many people who had so much creative thoughts or intellectual longing and it was all shut up and confined in prison. There's a funny story about a man whose heart beat voluptuously at the sound of chalk when he would be writing on the board. And he was assigned to be a manager at the bakery because he was so honest, but he almost died from not being able to engage in his intellectual pursuits. And so they eventually sent him back and they just chose a common crook instead and that made him happy. Artists would do very well. They could sell their paintings on the outside if they kept it a secret. Sculptors didn't do so well. If you were a composer or a poet, you could somewhat survive, but you couldn't really write prose. Solzhenitsyn mentions that from the 30s onwards, everything that is prose for Russia is merely, quote, the foam from a lake which has vanished on the ground, end quote. That's how beautifully he writes like throughout the entire book, FYI. And he says that the best of writers, they were suppressed because they would have to turn on themselves in order to lie for the state. Or if they didn't turn on themselves, they were picked off pretty quickly and early in the beginning. It's nice to know that if I were in that situation in the past, I might have survived as an artist in camp. wonder what I would be like. I would be such a different person, maybe. Or maybe I would have just died at the beginning because that's what I think now. Like, I would, I would just like be one of the people who are picked off because I just couldn't twist myself that much, maybe. Who knows? It's all conjecture. There's a wonderful footnote here about how in the past, people from different social classes in society couldn't really interact with each other. And so the people who could write and have the free time to do it, they couldn't comment or write about the perspective of other social segments. Um, even though those were also important. But then during the Gulag camp labor system, these people actually interacted, but because there wasn't any literary or artistic freedom allowed, a lot of that was lost. It's a really nice quote and it's in the notes that I have that I share with the supporters of the channel. And Solzhenitsyn mentions, I'm gonna give this quote, Evidently, man's nature is so egocentric that this transformation can only take place, alas, with the help of external violence. That is how Cervantes 
got his education in slavery and Dostoevsky his at hard labor. In the Gulag Archipelago, this experiment was carried out on millions of heads and hearts all at once. End quote. That's the social classes merging and the help of external violence. Choirs were a favorite of the organizers and they were popular with the prisoners because they could actually meet, men and women could actually talk to each other, and then they could roam the campgrounds a little bit after the curfew. Plays were a way for people to remember that there was a life outside of camp and they could dress up and have roles. He mentioned some famous names that were passed through the labor camps. Kozin, K-O-Z-I-N, actresses Tokarskaya, Okunevskaya, Zoya Fyodorova, Roslanova, I'm not sure how to pronounce his names, a well-known pianist, Visevolod Topilin. He was sent into battle with a rifle. And there was a section that made me laugh about a young actress named Nina who would spoil herself with cosmetics and those vile, in Solzhenitsyn's words, cotton padded shoulders with which all women out in freedom were destroying their beauty at that time. Literally made me laugh. <laughs> Solzhenitsyn also mentions and goes into detail that he believes in God and that he had not become a part of the prison theater, something he had thought he had wanted to do to make life easier. And then the troupe that he had been interested in um, they had been hit by a train while just traveling for one of their regular performances and he says that he once more realizes that the ways of God are imponderable. And throughout the chapter, it's clear that Solzhenitsyn has a deep love for art and artistry. Chapter 19, The Zex as a Nation, an ethnographical essay by Fan Fanich. This chapter starts out with a reference to the progressive teaching and that in this study, it would be prudent to not come into conflict with it. People still use that term today, progressive, for similar belief systems. So the idea of this chapter is that the Gulag system is like its own ensconced nation that has economic and cultural similarity within it that's separate from the outside. So prisoners had a special language called mother cursing that was incomprehensible to outsiders. When defining the nation, there isn't criteria of how populations are sustained through reproduction in the official definition. And Zex had all the other things that make people a people unique. So they had their own idioms like skin the rag, I'm still clicking, give me a glimmer, or to pick it off a lamppost. And he mentioned some etymology here. Until 1934, the official term for prisoners was Lishonye Svobody. I'm not sure if pronounce guys. Meaning deprived of freedom. But the descriptive word became Zak Lyushenye. And that seemed to be a combination of the words for prisoner and freedom. And the Zak is part of the prisoner part. So for the Zaks, there's a uniformity of appearance and facial expressions. They were guarded solemn and hard. There were island nations and Zex were proud of being of interest to anthropologists and being described as lazy, greedy, and sly. Being Zek was of foremost importance and later being Russian or Tatar or Pole, for example. Zex had an interesting relationship to government work. They would do what they call stretching the rubber, which is trying to not do any work at all really, but make it look like you're doing work. <laughs> so they would appear to follow all orders, yet not carry them out. So Azek would begin working when the chief appeared, and then stop working when the chief disappeared. Azeks did have a concept of calories, and unlike serfs, they didn't have any feeling that their masters were superior, and they didn't desire to work for any praise. They also didn't have ideological values, they did things based on whether or not they would get more rations and bread. And they would also sleep as much as possible. Zex were also secretive and indifferent to the cries of other Zex. They were also fatalistic, which would help them get through life. The Zek culture had some negative aspects as well. They trusted the arrival of Gorky, the writer who lied. They also worshipped amnesty like a god, which was comparable to the Christians' second coming of Christ. Zex had a secret love for justice, even if they themselves weren't just. They also had myths of extreme magnanimity, such as F. Kaplan being imprisoned for life rather than being shot. 
And they also loved telling stories of the past, particularly of their previous heights, and as we'll see in a bit of their escapes. They also didn't lose their humor, although they did lose their consciences. It's also imperative to distinguish between the language of the regular Zex and the language of the Thieves, also known as a tribe of cannibals. Not my words. Some of the Zex language could be found later in the language of the regular Russian population, particularly the young. At first, the Zex shied away from the author of this chapter, but then they later nicknamed him Fan Fanich, which is in the subtitle of the chapter, or Dil Tomajovich. It could be said that in the 20th century, through the Gulag Archipelago, a new nation was formed. Um, this chapter had a lot of interesting word breakdowns and like how it related to the free world but I didn't include it because I can't pronounce a lot of it but it was very interesting. I can't pronounce all of it actually, not just a lot of it. Chapter 20, the dog's service. The word dogs in the title of this chapter refers to the camp officials and administrators, the keepers. Solzhenitsyn says that he couldn't write a lot about top people like Garanin, Kashkatin, and Frankel, but they were known about secondhand. So this chapter is specifically about officials starting from colonels down to officers and surgeons and the infantry guard. I seriously hate that the word spelled colonel is pronounced colonel. Like, I don't know what language it comes from, but like, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. The longer that a camp keeper stayed in the organs, that's the workings of the Soviet rule and the Gulag camp system, the more likely it was that they were actually evil and okay with, well, I think all of us kind of have evil. So, I mean like evil as in evil evil. The more, the more likely it was that they were evil and were okay with trampling on each other's lives. They could stomach it. And MVD officers, that's special forces officers, they were cruel, but not as precisely cruel as the old Czechists. So the old prison custodial staff under the Tsaris, that dwindled by 1925 to 6%. But the custodial staff, they became communized and proletarianized and no love of human life flourished as was expected, you know, from the theory. He mentions that the camp chiefs were arrogant and they behaved as if they were plantation owners. They would use the Zex as personal slaves in order to like fetch some milk for them or sow them something. And then if the prisoners didn't do it, they would get in trouble. They were also greedy. They would steal furniture. They would steal prisoners' food, even though they had their own food. And not all of the camp chiefs were lascivious, but because of the nature of the job, a lot of them were. And chiefs were cruel since, open quote, unlimited power in the hands of limited people always leads to cruelty, close quote. Camp chiefs were also sadistic. They would give prisoners hope only to watch what happened when that hope was shot down. There were very few decent camp chiefs and it's a mystery how they survived. During and shortly after the war period, there were convoy guards who were brought in who weren't really suited for the job and a lot of them hated it and they were nice to the prisoners and sometimes even fell in love. Chapter 21, Campside. So, the word campsite refers to the surrounding area that would sustain camp. So that would have free workers, for example, who came in or the officers and the guards would live there. And so the life within the prison walls would kind of seep out into the surrounding area called campsite. People would show up with fake degrees or be bad scientists and try to use prisoner scientists work. The term Volnyashka was anyone who was not yet arrested, but was a free person. That's actually a funny statement. Um, anyone who was not yet arrested, so like, like just everyone's gonna be arrested eventually, no matter what you do. And they would work with prisoners as superintendents, foremen, and norm setters, as well as being drivers, electrical linemen, and so on. They would make friends with the Zex and do favors for them, like sell their clothes, or their paintings, or deposit letters or bring vodka into the work compounds. These workers in campsite, the free ones, they would make money on the side. 
So the money would came, the money would come by two different paths, which is not how socialism was supposed to work, but it did work on paper. There were really complex social dynamics that would occur here among the different groups in camp because the Volniashka, the free people, they would be of lower status of the guards, but then over at campsite, they might dance with a guard's wife, for example. There was also constant surveillance on campsite and free citizens would be worried. Uh, there's a story about a prisoner's wife who was free, letting her daughter be completely undressed and letting herself be pat down because people because they she and other people fared people in uniform so much and then the daughter being traumatized by it um along with many other things in this accounting of real life that people experience this is very depressing and difficult chapter 22 we are building this chapter begs the question were the camps worth it Prisoners weren't sent to camp based on morality, but based on economic needs and plans, at least Stalin's. So Janison expounds on the fact that, of course the camps were worth it because they were profitable. Where else could you find people to work in winter without proper food, being starved to death? Where would people jump to do whatever you want because they would be tortured or their, their family might get in trouble? They would march four miles through the woods in the early morning. They would work without rest days. They would work all day rather than the eight hour work day, for example. And who would be sent down into the Dejeskazgan mines for 12 hours a day? of dry drilling where they're obviously gonna get lung cancer because of all the silicate being brought up their noses. Where else in the 20th century could people just work without any safety precautions? Who else but prisoners could do this kind of labor? He also mentions the forefather of socialism, Thomas More, who's an interesting figure. You could, you could look that person up. And his book, Utopia, and that the labor of sex was needed for degrading and particularly heavy work, which no one under socialism would want to do. And it was actually stated in the later years that the archipelago was to pay for itself, even though the prisoners were doing all of this free labor. There was one case where the prisoners ended up stealing glass in order to meet the demands of the officers or the camp chief, and they stole it from a factory nearby and they put it in the furnace and I think glued it together and then said that they had made it. And so the camp officer was satisfied and then ordered mass production of the stolen glass. So the book provides a list of projects completed by prisoners from the beginning of the first Stalinist five-year plan to the time of Khrushchev and it's possibly incomplete. And that it's difficult to list the labor and contribution of the prisoners but what he can list is what they did not do, which included producing sausages and confectionery goods. They did not do that. Part four, the soul and barbed wire. This opens with a quote. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Chapter one, the ascent. Anyone could become a prisoner. The only thing separating a prisoner from a free person outside was barbed wire. People were imprisoned for their thoughts, not their actions, for becoming prisoners of war to enemies, for taking food from collective farms or from factories to feed their children. And prison had nothing to do with taking time to clear one's conscience and repent. What it did have to do with was crushing the soul of a person. People began to think that they had actually done something wrong. Many people tried to commit suicide, for example, using a piece of enamel to cut their wrist in front of a guard. One woman tried to kill herself three times and she was stopped each time by officials only to be shot later. Suicides were more common with Westerners and foreigners likely because they couldn't handle the situation as well. And those that didn't commit suicide, they had to make a choice. What price were they willing to pay in order to survive? And that price involved the price of another person. 
So this was what Solzhenitsyn calls the great divider of the soul. Prison would cause a rebirth of the soul. Men could become good or they could become evil. People had time to ponder deeply and they had the freedom within their own minds to not be asked to lie, to join the party, or to go to protest and shout, we demand, or we will not permit, or to be asked to vote for a specific candidate. So they did have that freedom on the inside, in prisons. They also didn't have to worry about their families or their property being taken away because they had already lost everything. And prisoners also had time to think about their own transgressions, what they had done. It's possible to see how you can become evil, or it's possible to see how you could be the person who could torture another person. It's possible to see your own version of misdeed. Friendship was difficult to have in prison. Here's a poem by Solzhenitsyn on his own life. When was it that I completely scattered the good seeds, one and all? For after all, I spent my boyhood in the bright singing of thy temples. Bookish subtitles sparkled brightly, piercing my arrogant brain. The secrets of the world were in my grasp, life's destiny as pliable as wax. Blood seethed and every swirl gleamed iridescently before me. Without a rumble, the building of my faith quietly crumbled within my heart. But passing here between being and nothingness, stumbling and clutching at the edge, I look behind me with a grateful tremor upon the life that I have lived, not with good judgment nor with desire are its twists and turns illumined, but with the even glow of the higher meaning, which became apparent to me only later on, and now with measuring cup returned to me, scooping up the living water. God of the universe, I believe again. Though I renounced you, you were with me. Without prison, Solzhenitsyn would not have understood himself. He says that he understands the purpose of religion to guard against the good and the evil that's within everyone. Revolutions think they can remove the evil people. Solzhenitsyn thanks prison, even though many writers cursed prison. Prisoners, including politicals, had to deal with deep human issues like envy. Political prisoners could feel envy when an actual criminal got released after amnesty, for example, and it was easy for someone to turn into a negative person while inside prison. Prisoners could become thieves, they could become corrupted. Many, not only the religious ones, really didn't become corrupted though, and they refused to lie even with every opportunity to do that. Camp corruption seemed to occur because people already had the inclination to do these things, especially if that corruption happened quickly. Prisoners might stay behind with their friend even though they knew they were going to freeze. So corruption wasn't inevitable and it also didn't occur without the opposite, what he calls ascent, happening. The prisons were also designed consciously to have prisoners turn against each other. They had to tell on each other, they might be deprived of rest, for a whole day because of one prisoner then they had to guard over each other or and some of them became proud and they didn't care about stealing from another prisoner or when they got into a new position shooting another prisoner so that environment was there but not everybody succumbed some prisoners actually handled solitary confinement really well while others didn't and so the system wasn't actually equal in terms of how people were being punished so in some ways prison was easier for some zex than others being alone might be better than having unpleasant company and intellectuals in particular were more likely to like the being alone a lot of the intelligentsia were killed off because they weren't suited to dealing with physical labor Chapter three, or muzzled freedom. Free life was inescapably influenced by the archipelago. Literature wasn't written in this time period because people couldn't write the truth. Society was influenced in different ways. People lived in constant fear. Recruitment to the archipelago happened all the time. People were afraid of not only arrests, but inspections, questions, expulsions, not being able to have a residence permit. People were aware of their own insignificance and the non-existence of rights. 
They weren't open, but they were secretive. One woman lied that her husband abandoned her rather than say that he had been arrested, for example, and they kept secrets from family members. And they also would shun each other when they did speak, frankly. I want to give a quote. Nadezhda Mandelstam speaks truly when she remarks that our life is so permeated with prison that simple meaningful words like they took or they put inside or he is inside or they let out are understood by everyone in our country in only one sense, even without a context. People became servile, they didn't take risks. Stool pigeons or informers, they were so common that everyone was suspect. And this intentionally, by design, sowed distrust among every kind of relationship between parent and child, between man and wife, between children, between colleagues. And people would also ignore when other people were going through hard times. And that's because anyone who concealed an enemy was an enemy. And if you continued your friendship with an enemy, you were an enemy. And so in a big city, people would feel like they were in a desert. Children were orphaned and betrayals between every kind of relationship there is were common. Another quote I would like to share is this. Those who were not alive during that time or who do not live today in China will find it nearly impossible to comprehend and forgive this. In ordinary human societies, the human being lives out his 60 years without ever getting caught in the pincers of that kind of choice. And he himself is quite convinced of his decency, as are those who pronounce speeches over his grave. A human being departs from life without ever having learned into what kind of deep well of evil one can fall. Just saving family archives or helping a fugitive on the run that was an action against the state. And the people who were bold, they were arrested early. And so in that way, the soul of the country died from the beginning. The people who were left over were the ones who were corrupt. There was a mechanic who let someone into his home and then he was arrested because the person told on him for praising German machinery. It's like, it's so absurd. The, the absurdity doesn't mean anything. It's just an outlet. It's like people have issues going on in them and they will find a way to let it out. I mean, if the rest of society lets them. Like, it, it's absurd because it's not about that. You know, it's about what's going on inside of people and then finding a way to release release that instead of healing it. And I would say turning to God for help. But another thing that would happen was that students of former professionals would steal their work and then claim that work as their own. Lying was a norm because you had to lie to exist. That's not actually true, but that's how people felt. People had to lie about what they cared about, what made them angry, what pleased them, how they felt about sending their children away, who was smart, Stalin, and so on. Cruelty was another thing that was common among people because of the society. Because um, you would be punished for having empathy or for being kind to others. And then people would also use their power over others by threatening them with arrest. He also mentions a story of one relative spitting on another relative in the face just because they got on their nerves. That was a difficult story to read. Millions of women lost their husbands and sons to prisons and they were treated badly and they would try and go and find them or send food parcels or visit the graves but not be able to identify them or they died before prisoners were released. Children who were barely able to write would send letters to their fathers that were never delivered. You know, I'm just gonna pause here and mention that the breaking down of human bonds is something that is purposefully done really often. Uh, when I say purposefully, I do literally think that there are people who try to pull strings, but I also think it just works through regular people because they, you know, maybe everybody, like you have trauma and then you don't deal with it. And then like, that's a way to get you to do things that if you're thinking clearly because you're not, when you like have things you haven't dealt with, to get you to do other things to other people. And what I was thinking about as I was reading this stuff is that I think social media does that. 
I think it breaks down bonds between people. One, it captures your attention, so you're not spending it like with actual people around you. Not everybody, but it, it's definitely does that just from the way it is and the way our minds and emotions work. And then you're also arguing with people, so it pits people against each other, and you you can't interact. Like when we interact, it's I don't know how much like seventy percent or something of our interaction is nonverbal. Like. You are missing so much. Like you're not smelling the other person. You're not actually like hearing like the inflections in their voice. I mean, everybody knows this, but like you think it doesn't matter, but it does. Like when you're interacting with people, which is how so much of our interaction happens nowadays, especially with lockdowns and stuff, they're not fully being human. Like you're not fully experiencing their humanity. And I think that is really important. And I hope to see the world like turn away from that um I, I don't like think anything is inherently bad like the internet and social media is all great but these things are not good and i do think that they're being used nefariously because you it happens very slowly and you like i i just want to say it's like advertisements or something like you think it's not important but it's really important so i'll get off my pedestal now but just wanted to mention that <laughs> There's a cute letter here and that a boy sent to his father and I will just read the end of it. Otyashenka. Hello Papa, I forgot how to write soon. In school I will go through the first winter. Come quickly because it's bad. We have no Papa. Mama says you are away on work or sick. And what are you waiting for? Run away from that hospital here. Olyeshka ran away from hospital. Justin, his shirt. Mama will sew you new pants and I will give you my belt. All the same. The boys are all afraid of me. And Otyashenka is the only one I never beat up. <laughs> he also tells the truth. He's also poor. And I once lay in fever and wanted to die along with mother. And she did not want to and I did not want to. Oh, my hand is numb from writing. That's enough. I kiss you lots of times. Chapter four, several individual stories. The purpose of this chapter was to show how the individual life of prisoners would intersect with the archipelago rather than how he was, and this would have been distinct from the way he's talking about the archipelago and then fitting people's lives into it. But he didn't have time to finish the chapter so he just lists a couple different stories. There's a prodigy named Anna Petrovna Stripnikova, and she ended up studying philosophy and psychology and teaching logic at a really young age. She had to stop studying and she became a socialist, but she thought that a lot of good people would die when the revolution began. And so during the revolution, she stood up to the Reds and a lot of people applauded her and said thanks, but that she was done for. And she was arrested later and she awaited her execution in ecstasy because she was doing a really good deed rather than living life and not being highly moral but then her pardon was requested by other intellectuals and she was told that they had never arrested anybody like her so she got off because a lot of people kept asking about her and she was a worker's daughter so she saw what the prisons were like and decided to never have a child under this kind of socialism. She refused to lie to the government that she was a Marxist because she had never read Marx and she taught but then she went to prison many times and the government tried to get her to collaborate after firing her from jobs for four years. She eventually actually wrote to the United Nations to complain about what was happening in Russia um, and she asked them to investigate and for her case to be re-examined or for her to be executed. So she was ready to die, but they wouldn't let her. I feel a small smattering of respect, but it, it just won't come out. You know, like when you have a drop of water that like won't fall from the faucet, it's like it just keeps beating, but then it won't drop. That's the feeling in me because yeah, she was willing to actually do the thing, not just have her theory and pawn it off on other people. But she was also still supporting something where if there's a revolution, a lot of good people would die. And so she's like, I just can't fully feel the respect. It's just like it wants to come out, but it just won't fully emerge. That's the feeling I feel when I read her story, personally. 
So she wanted there to be justice for the millions of people who had died and she got a lot of people freed and then many people remained afraid of her pen. Another man named Stefan or Stepan Vasilyevich Loshin. Uh, he was a worker, part of the party, but he refused to become a police officer. So he was detained without trial and his money was taken from him after he was interrogated. He was imprisoned a few times because he was noticeable because of the condition of his clothes. And then he was eventually released after three years, but his life shows how the camp system treated laborers. Solzhenitsyn wanted to write more in this chapter, so he didn't have the time and at this point Solzhenitsyn had been writing the book for 20 years. So that's the end of volume 2, parts 3 to 5, which was the end of the destructive labor camps, finishing that part, and then also the soul and barbed wire. So here are my overall comments. The most important thing to me, out of everything that I just listened to, and I might mention this at the end, is his comments on religion, um, focusing on the good or the evil that can exist within the heart of every person and how revolutions try to focus on specific bad evil people but actually it can come out of any one of us it's based on the choices we make or the experiences we've had and then the choices we make with that stopping the evil within each person being more important than an ideology that tries to get rid of a certain group or type of people religions try to guard against good and evil within everyone rather than remove the people through revolution. Religion can be bad because it's man-made, but at least it's focusing on the fact that it's man-made. Man being human, meaning that bad can come from human, not from some particular group or some particular ideology. Like you can't focus it on that. You just focus it on the individual person. So that's the most important thing to me that I've read. That's what's in this part of the book. Another thing that stood out to me was that they, the fact that they tracked someone down for 17 years and people's families being under surveillance. Do you know how much energy must have been spent on that? And do you know how that energy could have been spent on other things like, I don't know, having fun <laughs> or making something beautiful or building civilization? or inventing new things or anything like there's so much human potential and all of that is just being converted into stuff like surveilling someone's family who didn't actually do anything wrong in order to keep the peace or whatever people want to say like i said it's just taking out their issues and other people is really all that it is and in order for all of this to happen other people had to treat other people badly they had to be in on it that's both the people who are doing it and then the people who are having it done to them because a lot of people were submissive, like not enough people fight it back. Another thing I noticed was Solzhenitsyn's loving disdain for Russia. So it's clear that there's a love and then with that love, you know, comes the criticism, the tough love. But it's a criticism wishing it could get better, you know? And it also reminds me of a conversation with the professor that I had about uh, anti-semitism and how actually also people who were claimed to be anti-semites were Jewish. Um, it's on my channel. Her name's Rebecca. If you wanted to listen to that conversation, it was about like hate speech and that kind of topic. Another thing I noticed was private property and how it's always rules for me but not for thee and how if you want to have something that's fair, it has to treat people as equals and individuals you can't have separate groups that say this group is more something than the other group and then another thing was the part about the criminal code and thieves that really reminded me of black lives matter meaning both politicians defending criminals and also the police having more power than citizens so that they they're not charged the same way for doing something bad as if they were a citizen. I know that gets complicated, but I do think they should have more responsibility. Like you can't give power without more consequences and responsibility. And then another thing was the police not having to put themselves in danger in order to protect people, but then people not being able to protect themselves if they can't count on the police. Like it just doesn't make sense. And of course, crime not supposedly existing in a classist society and um, the comments of some modern day politicians, I'm particularly thinking of 
Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, although it's a long time ago now, and her comments about bread, um, and she was saying, well, people wouldn't steal if they could get food. And it's just like, we live in the modern world. Like, it's, it's not the way it used to be. And people just have this idea that if you're poor, you can't be moral. And it's just not true. Like, I've seen that and it's not true. That's crap. I'm very insulting to people who don't have as much money as whoever they're comparing themselves to because poverty is very relative. Another thing I noticed is how kids adapted. You, you know, they learned. <laughs> they learned well. I saw a lot of the parallels with slavery, I want to say the trans transatlantic slave trade, but it's really any kind of slavery, not one is more like important or worthy of care and concern than the other. And then something else I was thinking about was art being political as someone who is very creative and is an artist and how so much of art seems to be about politics. Like that's what progressives do. They use art to fund their ideas and like that's how a lot of progressive politics seem to work they fund art to channel it into that and i mean okay you're gonna fight for what you believe in but art is way more than that the part about the social dynamics at campsite with the guards and the prisoners or sorry the free people and them interacting with each other that was just interesting to think about imagining being in that situation and then another thing too was the utopia book and the grandfather of socialism Solzhenitsyn called him Thomas More um, and I really wonder if it's a situation like with the a lot of people say that uh, Jesus would be for, for communism which makes no sense to me because like Giving to people is completely separate from using the state to do it. And I haven't read this Utopia book, but I mean, I'm wondering if it's something like that because this person um, was a Christian when I looked it up, this Thomas More person. And then another thing was the question of were the camps worth it? The We Are Building chapter and is slavery or slave labor profitable? And I don't know if that's true. I don't think it's true. Like anything can be profitable if you devalue one thing. So if you just don't pay properly for one thing, in this case being human labor, then you can make it profitable. But is that actually profitable? And I don't know, I was just thinking about that. It's like what we place value on. So if we just value certain things, people will be willing to pay more for it and then it will be profitable. So a lot of it like is something profitable or not. Well, like, do you care enough? <laughs> you know, do you care? You know, and that's why a lot of times when I, I think I repeat this all the time, when I see people having very logical arguments, it's like you cannot separate the emotions and the heart from it because it, it does factor into what the end result will be. And then another thing was a woman who I couldn't fully feel the respect for and people applauding her but then saying that she's done for and that a lot of people are like that today they're like really happy when someone stands up but then they don't stand up and like i get it i really do like you're worried about whatever you're worried about but yeah when i read that it's like people still do that and it's like don't let other people do it for you like be inspired you know and then you go do something too as Solzhenitsyn said, if everyone has been, if everyone had been as implicable as that woman, Russia's history would have been different. I don't have an ending quote for you. That's all for now. And I'll end with what I think was the most important, which was guarding against the good and evil within your own heart. That's probably the most important work that you can do as a person. I hope that you have been edified in some way. I will talk to you soon and I hope that you have an awesome day. Okay, so for my important comments, as you know, this is one of the last videos of Just Thinking Out Loud, aka JTOL. 
And so I just want to let you know that it might be a good time to get some merchandise like their mugs and posters um, and a sweatshirt um, and stickers just for your own memory and commemoration because I will not be updating here anymore. And then as a segue to that, I want to let you know something great which is that I will be focusing on my art. You'll be able to follow me elsewhere. So just look up Desiree, D-E-S-I-R-A-E, and find my art. They have a website, Desiree.com. I always link everything, so if I ever end up doing something else, you will see it there. You can follow me on YouTube, and you can follow me on Library, find Desiree Arts. So, see, I'm not totally gone, okay? I'm just, you know being myself and a little withdrawn and private because I've kind of always been like that and I don't feel the need to discuss politics the way I did before so you can follow me in that way and I can promise you that it will be good if you're into that stuff bye again um I'll talk to you soon and I uh, hope you have a good day bye